0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmyra.ca. Well, good morning, citizens. It is really, really good to be here with all of you today. I just want to thank Dustin and the worship team for leading us in worship and serving in your gifts, and to the Weaver clan for reading scripture for us. Thank you for serving this church. Uh, Kids, at this time, you're dismissed. I've been told that half the church will now leave, so. I know many of you, and Darcy said it earlier, but my name is Chris Koenig, and I'm from way the heck on the other side of town at Woodside. Um, It's my privilege to bring you guys love and prayers and affection from your planting church. Yeah, we want to bless you guys and cheer for you as you serve our Savior here at Citizens. I know that this morning is just like normal church for all of you, but for me, um, this is really exciting. About four years ago, my wife Katie and I joined with uh, many of you and some other people at Woodside to begin to pray about what had been stirring in our elders' hearts And So to see all of you gathered here this morning, that's like um, watching my prayers answered in real time. So praise God this morning. It's going to be damp, I promise. I'm also really pleased to open God's word with all of you. Um, The passage was read for us earlier from Habakkuk, the end of chapter 1 and then all of chapter 2. And as Darcy mentioned, he began this little book last week. Um, and spoke about questioning God in the midst of pain. Is that familiar? Remember that? I know you guys had a lot going on last week, so um, questioning God in the midst of pain. You went through the first uh, part of the first chapter where you heard the prophet's first complaint and then God's subsequent response, and so this morning we're going to look at the prophet's next complaint and God's next response. So if you'd turn with me in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1, We'll begin in verse 12. Uh, Just before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're gathered here today as brothers and sisters. We've been adopted as your children because of Jesus Christ. Our purpose here this morning, Lord, is that we would glorify the name of Jesus. Um, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would make this word come alive, that you would convict us and convince us of the truth. We believe that the truth is Jesus and so we we submit ourselves to his loving lordship again here this morning. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen. So, Habakkuk chapter 1 and we'll begin in verse 12 and we'll tackle this book in sections. Or this book. Let's not do the whole book this morning, that'd be long. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. The them there, that's Babylon. You looked at this last week. Them. You've ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no rulers. He, the he there, that's again Babylon, he brings them, all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net, he gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and he is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net, makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower, and I will look out and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So that is the prophet's second complaint. Now, we probably should recall the first one so that we better understand the second. So remember that the first complaint was essentially how long, O Lord? How long are you going to let evil carry on and habakkuk's looking around his own nation at israel and he's seeing evil he's seeing violence and justice being perverted contentiousness and he calls out oh lord how long and god's first response is essentially not much longer i'm gonna send babylon to come and conquer you to punish you for this evil this makes habakkuk's second complaint a little more understandable how long O oh lord not much longer I'm going to send Babylon to conquer you. Hang on a minute, Lord. They're worse than we are. How does that accomplish anything? You can almost hear that right in the text. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And then the prophet begins using this picture of a fisherman. That Babylon just goes around kind of hooking and catching nations and killing them mercilessly. And then that the Babylonians, they worship their own strength. They make offerings to their weapons, to their power. And Habakkuk adds, like, is he, is the wicked foe Babylon, going to keep on emptying his net, mercilessly killing nations forever? Now that word forever is important because he begins his second complaint with, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord my God, my Holy One. If God is eternal forever and holy, will God, this forever holy God, let an unholy nation carry on forever? They're in contrast. How could this be? Does that sound kind of like a question you've heard maybe? Let me rephrase it a little bit. If God is all powerful, if he's eternal forever, and he's all good if he's holy, why evil? It's, it's the agnostics conundrum, right? Right? can't be the atheist. The question itself presupposes good and evil, absolute morality. We need a God for that. But if we're honest, we hear this from skeptics, right? All powerful, all good, yet evil? And maybe if we're painfully honest, we as Christians are often like the prophet. We ask the same question. Like, maybe like me, you've kind of muttered something similar to this, to the Lord before. And as Christians, like, we believe in the Lord God Almighty, don't we? You guys are quiet over here? We're quiet at Woodside too. But we believe in the Lord God Almighty, we believe in him. And even as a church in North America, we're getting better at admitting when there's error in the church, when there's sin in the nation, right? But we're also grieved at the even greater evil outside the church. We're grieved at the evil in our nation, in the cultures around us, right? We ask, God, why would you allow our culture to actively distort and malign the gospel? Why? Why would you allow other nations to like viciously suppress the spread of your word? And this isn't just like simple questioning God about evil in this world. This is like, God, why would you use evil people as your instruments? That gets really challenging. We read in this text that the Lord has ordained them as a judgment. Ordained, we think of pastor, like <laughs> ordained them as a judgment. We read that he actually established them. How? The same text says God's eyes are so pure, he can't look at wrongdoing. So, how could he possibly establish evil forces to punish Israel for their seemingly less severe wickedness? This is tough questions. And maybe like Habakkuk, sometimes you and I, we want to interrogate God. Like we get him chained down, and then we lay out all of our complaints. We give him our sorrows and our tears, and then we give him our logic and our reasons for everything. And then we say kind of, well, I'm going to take my stand at the watchpost and see what you will say to me. And what you will answer concerning my complaint. Maybe sometimes you and I, we wait for him to answer. Well, God does answer Habakkuk's complaint. So let's go to verse 2 of chapter 2. And the Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Now, one thing to note as we work our way through this text is that Habakkuk keeps using the word Lord for God. Lord in caps, right? That is the personal revealed name of God. That's Yahweh. And God uses that name for himself in here too. So we should be quick to recognize the relationship. This is a covenant relationship. God is near and personal and he's interested. He's having a conversation with his own people. He's not some deity way off in the distance. He's a living God actively working in his people. And he begins by assuring Habakkuk that he's good on his word. He says, write it down. Make it plain. Essentially, you can bet your life on this. It is going to come to pass. And I love in verse 3 if it seems slow, wait for it. It will not delay. God is reminding Habakkuk that the time for this is appointed. That in God's sovereign plan for human history, this judgment is marked and sealed. It's not going to be missed. And then God contrasts the arrogant man, which in this specific context is the nation of Babylon, with the righteous man. There's a weird little phrase in there. Did you catch it? Wine is a traitor. That word wine could be the word wealth. It's a little ambiguous. But the idea here is that the arrogant man puts his trust in false gods, whether that be riches or pleasures or created things or powers or even himself. And it's contrast with the righteous man. What does the righteous man do? He shall live by faith you almost expect, maybe you're like me in the Old Testament, you almost expect the text to read, the righteous shall live by the laws of the Lord. That'd be true too. But that is not what God is interested in communicating right here. He says the righteous shall live by faith. Now we're going to come back to this portion of the text later on, so tuck it away. Don't forget about it, it exists. But we're going to move on to verse 6. And when we come to verse 6, we come to a passage that's often given the heading the five woes. Now God is basically going to warn of five sins that Babylon is committing. He's going to state the judgment that is associated with each of these sins and then the reason why the sinner is going to receive this judgment. Now these verses are specifically addressed to the Babylonians, but there are general truths in here that have not changed for you and I today. So we're going to look and see what we can find in here. There's, yeah, I should put out the disclaimer. Warning, put it on the box. This is going to get heavy. These are really dark parts of human fallenness, of humanity. And so it's going to feel a little bit grim. But I promise there's good news in here also. I joked with Darcy, he gave me the tough one. So we're going to work through these slowly, and may God speak to us through his word today. Now, maybe just before we do that, does anyone know what woe to you means? It's not like common anymore, right? Nobody's using that at work. Benny, when somebody cuts something wrong, woe to you. Not, it's not that common anymore. But woe to you is essentially a phrase that is pronouncing judgment while at the same time sort of expressing like regret or distress. It's not like gleeful judgment. It's sorrowful judgment. So the first woe, it's in verses 6 through 8. Shall not all these things take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long, and loads himself with pledges, will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in him. So the first woe is, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. The first woe is basically theft, right? It's stealing. And judgment is coming for those who take what is not their own. And the punishment here is mirrored. It's reciprocal. Because you've plundered many nations, many nations will come and plunder you. This certainly comes true for the Babylonians. All this wealth that they have stolen from other people ends up getting stolen from them. And so each each woe we come to, we're also gonna look at ourselves in the mirror. What about us? Maybe this goes without saying. Christians don't steal. <laughs> That's an explicitly unchristian thing to do. But what about in like more subtle ways? Are we okay to do a heart check this morning? Do you ever have a work day where you give like 20% effort? That's theft. Or Here's one that hurts me. Do you ever accept praise for something that you didn't do? Or more poignant yet, do you ever accept praise for the motive for something you did that paints you in a better light than the reality of why you did the thing? That's woe number one. So let's move on to woe number two. It begins in verse nine. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You've devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stones will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. And so the second woe is woe to him who gets evil gain. Evil gain. That's basically exploitation. And the phrase that's tucked in this section is actually a phrase we still use today. It's the phrase, to get your cut of something. Here it's used negatively. And the punishment to taking your cut through exploiting people is that you yourself will be cut off. It says that you've actually forfeited your very life. So it comes true for the Babylonians. What about us? What about you and I? How are we doing? Exploitation, anyone? Maybe we don't use that word. Maybe we're a little different with it. How about cheating on your homework or a test for the purpose of a better grade? That's evil gain for your house. What about using your influence to get your way, to manipulate people or to earn something for yourself at the expense of others? That's evil gain for your house. That's hitting a little closer home for me. One good thing to note is that the gain In this section is not the problem. We can gain. It's the method of gain that's the problem. We cannot gain evilly. So let's go to woe number three. It begins in verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire. And nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The third woe is woe to him who builds in blood. So the third woe is actual violence. Maybe you've heard this phrase in the last couple years. Silence is violence. In the text here, violence is violence. This is talking about physical harm and bloodshed. And the punishment for building in blood is that all of your building is going to amount to nothing. It's ultimately gonna be consumed by fire. Comes true for the Babylonians. What about us? Where are we at? Are you physically violent? Do you threaten violence? Everyone's good, right? We're peaceable Canadians. Okay, let's get a little closer to home. Parents, what about discipline? Do you spank your children when they misbehave out of love for them or out of anger at them in the moment? One of those is explicitly encouraged by God, and one of them is not. Let's get a little blurrier. What about using physical intimidation to impose your will? Men, I know this is something that we have an advantage in. Do you ever use it? The line starts getting a little blurrier. What about with your spouse? I hope there is not a hint Of physical intimidation between you and your spouse. That is not from God. Let's go to the fourth woe. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. And so the fourth woe is woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. The fourth woe is debauchery. Do we need this reminder this morning? Friends, drunkenness is a sin. Encouraging drunkenness is a sin. The same is true of getting high. We're commanded by the Lord to be of a sound mind. Now, what is the punishment for this in the text? It says, you yourself will be shamed. And God actually keeps up with the drinking imagery. He says, the cup of the Lord's right hand is going to come around to you, that you're actually going to end up drinking from the cup of God's wrath. You'll get shame instead of glory. So how are we doing How are we doing, friends? Christians don't get drunk. Nor do they encourage drunkenness. And we're sneakier with this one. Aren't we sneakier with this one? Like with the previous woe with violence, we would never say, oh, I don't hit my wife. I just push her around a little bit so violence isn't a problem for me. We would never do that. But with this one, don't we do that a little bit? Right? Oh, I don't get drunk. I just... I get a good buzz on in a safe context. So drunkenness isn't a problem for me. Friends, do not be fooled. God certainly isn't. God commands us throughout Scripture to be of sound mind. That is how we represent him well on this earth. So let's go to the final woe. Verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone. Arise, can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, but there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And so the fifth woe is woe to him who makes Idols. The fifth woe is idolatry. Now it's been said that at the heart of idolatry is the worship of the creation instead of the creator. And here we see that these idols are speechless. There's no breath in them. You caught the imagery, right? That's like in direct contrast to the actual God who spoke all things into being out of nothing and then breathed life into them. And the punishment for the idolater is silence. They will be made silent, just like the wood and the stone and the gold that they've put their trust in. It's true of the Babylonians. What about us? Now, I'm fairly confident that if we all did home tours this afternoon, we wouldn't find any little shelves with figurines and candles and little, I don't know, bangles? Is that what you call them? That we, like, stand in front of and pray to, right? We're not going to find that. But... Do we still struggle with idolatry? Do we sometimes worship the creation? Anybody worship their bank account? Sorry, did I say that out loud? Ouch! There's sneakier ones in here too. Anyone just like getting through the week, living for the weekend? That's idolatry. Living for your next trip or vacation. Idolatry. Living for your spouse or your kids. That's idolatry. It's putting a created thing in the place of God. We're sneakier with this one. This is a sin that runs really deep in us as fallen creatures. Okay, let's pause. Are we okay? I t- yeah, okay, louder than Woodside. I know that's heavy stuff. Like, and that should feel heavy. That's serious. It should, it should feel heavy grim. Like these are things that we are often inclined towards, that we move towards, but they actually oppose God. They fight against the living God. And I know that it is tough to talk about our own sin. It's not a very popular thing to do, right? It's not in to talk about sin, as they say. I don't know if they say that. But can I remind you this morning? This probably hasn't happened in a while. Somebody stands up in front of you with a Bible. You are a sinner. That's like a 40s preacher, right? You're a sinner. I said it to myself in the mirror this morning Chris, you're a sinner. We stand condemned before a holy God. We have not lived up to his standard. And sometimes, like Habakkuk, we're quick to point the finger outside of the family of God, right? We say, God, look, look, Lord. Look at these terrible people out there. Look how they disobey you, how they run to do evil, how they delight in twisting your truth, how they harm themselves and others. Look at the pride, Lord. Look how they put their confidence in themselves, how they kind of lean on their own understanding, how they long for the admiration of others. Sometimes we forget our need. As one of the reformers famously said, but for the grace of God go I. I'm no different than that. I steal. At the very least, I heap up things for myself that don't belong to me. All of my possessions are the Lord's, and I act sometimes like I own them. I exploit, like I use my advantages to get my way, even if it's at the expense of others. I've been violent, at the very least in my thoughts. I get the dark kind of mad. I encourage drunkenness. If not directly, at least through my silence, my unwillingness to say exactly what it is. And I set up idols. I sometimes worship created things. I give glory to things or circumstances or people when I know full well that glory belongs to God. And so we should feel the weight of these woes. We should, like, grapple with the heaviness of our fallenness. Prone to wander, you know the song? I feel that. Do you do what you don't want to do, but you do it anyways? We call this the doctrine of depravity. Big words. The doctrine of depravity. That basically, because of our forerunner, Adam, our forefather, we are born enslaved to sin. We're separated from God. We're born apart from him. We suffer from systemic blood poisoning. That's what my theology professor would say. That we are born with this fatal disease that is literally killing us. The poison of sin. And we confirm that Adam is our forefather day by day as we sin ourselves. So we aren't like inherently good, no matter how many people tell us we are. Christ on earth reminded us that only God is good. That was in the Gospel of Mark. You were just there. But the doctrine of depravity should not lead us to despair because although you and I are not good, we have a God who is good. Although you and I are prone to wander, to get lost, we have a shepherd who comes looking for us Although you and I have corrupt blood coursing through our veins, we have been given a blood transfusion through a spotless donor. We heard it this morning from Darcy. Although you and I were dead in our sins, we've been made alive in Christ. So the doctrine of depravity should not lead us to despair. It should lead us to Jesus, to celebration for what he has done on our behalf And so we have to go there. Although grim, the reminder of human sinfulness has hope because of the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So friends, I want to go back to the beginning of chapter 2. Would you turn there with me? I really think that these first couple verses in here, they're for us today. And as we go back here, I just want to remember that the whole of the written word is pointing us towards... The word made flesh. The Logos, Jesus. That's another personal revealed name for God. And so he is here, okay? Even in Habakkuk, he's here. So let us look for him. Verse one, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Friends, this should be our posture in the midst of pain, when we're questioning God in the midst of pain. We take our post. We stand watch. We look for Christ. We search for him. We look for what he wants to say to us. And maybe almost surprisingly, we make our complaint. You talked about this last week. In 1 Peter, he calls it like casting our cares on God. Peter actually uses really similar language. He says to be alert, take your watch post to stay sober-minded, to be of the right mind, and cast our cares on Christ. In the midst of pain, in the midst of questioning God, position yourself like this prophet and cry out for Jesus. Cry out to Him, wait for Him. He listens to our questions. He hears those, those deep cries for help, those cries for relief in suffering. He empathizes with our condition because he knows our need. In verse 2, And the Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Those first couple words, the Lord answers. That by itself is remarkable. God answers us. He answers. And notice in the text, he answers with his written word. Write it down, he says. That's a good reminder for you and I today. God has answered us many things in his written word. He answers tough questions in here. We can search the scriptures and find the heart of God. He's to be found in here, truth for our circumstances. And then God says, wait. One commentator writes this, Habakkuk, like all of us, was living between the times, between the promise of God and the fulfillment. Habakkuk was to wait in faith, For God to act, he was assured that the judgment of evil will surely come. It will not be late. But Habakkuk was not to wait with like folded hands and bated breath for this to happen. He was to live a life of faithfulness. The righteous shall live by faith. It's a remarkable line in Habakkuk, isn't it? Amazingly, this text, this portion of scripture, is going to be one that the Apostle Paul is going to use in the New Testament to put forward the doctrine of our salvation in Jesus Christ. That's remarkable. In Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live By faith. He's quoting Habakkuk. Galatians 3. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Our Christian understanding of salvation by the grace of Jesus Christ through faith in him is foreshadowed for us right here in Habakkuk, 600 years before Jesus walks the earth. It's amazing. He is in here. And so in the midst of pain, in the midst of questioning God, what is our response to be? Faith. It's faith. And so don't let the pain push you into either ditch, into pride or despair, hopelessness. Wait in faith. Now that takes the long view of human history, right? Trusting God in the midst of this pain means that we have to have a healthy understanding of God's sovereignty, that he's actually and honestly in control. Therefore, we can trust him. We can faith in him. In Romans 8, 28, we read, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That verse begins with, we know. We know this. We know it. God works things together for good. What things? All things. All of the things. Not some things. Not just good things, all things. God is in control, friends. That means that our pain is never wasted. It's not useless. It's not insignificant. It is being worked by God in God's good plan for those who are called according to his purpose. It's not that all things are there for good. Not at all. But all things are being used for good. You say, really, Chris? The death of my parent, my child's illness, global conflict, abortion. How could that be used for good? I, I don't know how, but we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. God is actively restoring his creation. He's not slow, as some people see slowness. He's patient with us. But he will surely right all wrongs. He will crush all evil. He's going to banish all suffering. He's going to end all sorrow. He will wipe away all of our tears. He's going to heal all pain. And someday soon, Lord, he's going to make all things new. So take hold, friends. Grab hold of that faith in Jesus. He's the author of it, He is perfecting it in you. And so, if our response in the midst of pain, in the midst of questioning God, is supposed to be faith, to trust in Him, how is that done? How do we faith? Well, the book of James tells us that faith works or it is dead. So it's got to work. So how do we work out our faith? Friends, this is simple obedience. It's obedience. Faith in God is taking him at his word. It's played out in our response to his words. If we believe him, we will do them. We don't get puffed up in self-righteousness like we would somehow know better than God. No, we trust in the righteousness of Christ. He's laid out for us what living by faith looks like. And in our response to the passage this morning, that means flee from these woes. Run. Run from these sins. They will ruin you. If you have pain in your life or hurt in your heart, don't let that push you towards these things that will ruin you. Don't steal because you were stolen from. Don't exploit others because you've been taken advantage of. Don't hurt people because you're hurt. Don't run to the drink to find false joy. Don't set up false gods because you feel like the real one owes you something. Now, I'm not saying that this is easy. These things are exactly where we want to run when we're hurt, when we're questioning God in pain. This is what our hearts kind of want. This is dark evil. It's not easy. In fact, I'm kind of saying it's impossible. But for the grace of God, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. This is not our own doing. This is the action of the Holy Spirit working in you a new heart, reminding you of the new blood that you have, that's been given to you by Jesus Christ. And so we should feel the weight of these woes deeply because when we recognize that we need saving, we will see the Savior. And so friends, in hard things, in pain, Position yourself like the prophet. Cry out to God. Stand watch. See what he will say to you. Listen for the Lord. His plans are appointed. If they seem slow, wait and live by faith. Faith is accredited to you as righteousness before God. And we can remember that this journey of being made into the likeness of Jesus, this process of sanctification, it's a process. It takes time. Like, Probably even Habakkuk struggled with this. Like, he laid out his complaint. He brought it to God. He probably was honestly looking for an answer. But then it took a whole bunch of time. And in the meantime, we have a good example in him in that he acknowledged these truths about God and ultimately, little spoiler alert for next week, he comes to a position of trust in his good God. Now, part of living in faith is living with our brothers and sisters in Christ, with our church family. And so if sin or circumstances are overwhelming you right now, they're just heavy in your life, would you find a brother or sister here that you trust and talk to them? We can help one another move towards Jesus. He's given us a family for a reason. And so if you're in the process of releasing one of these woes over to Jesus Christ, go to a friend. We talked about it earlier. We're supposed to confess our sins to one another. It's not so that everybody knows each other's dirt. It's because we can encourage, we can admonish, we can strengthen each other and point each other towards our risen Savior. Jesus is our living hope. He's the sole reason that our pain can have purpose. And ultimately, he is our joy and our strength. Would you join with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can gather as a church family and praise you. Lord, and in hard things, sometimes when we're questioning you in pain, it's challenging to take a position of faith. Lord, we want to run to dark things. When our heart is heavy, we... We confess that we don't always seek after you to make it whole again. Lord, we know that you are the living God. You you made all of the things and we want to run to you. We ask that by your Holy Spirit you would strengthen our heart, that you would remind us of our new position in Jesus, that we are children of God. And Lord, encourage us in our faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.